You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. As always, so excited to have you with me. Today, we are talking leadership and self-love and how life is one big juggling act and not always a pretty one at that. But before I reveal who we're talking about all of this with, and she happens to be sitting across from me right now, I want to read you something that she wrote. And For some context, it was her first day back at work from maternity leave. She was heading to work at her dream job. And the day was a whirlwind, of course. So much of one that she forgot to pump breast milk. And we've all been there. (laughs) By the end of the day, she writes, There I was, kneeling on the floor of the bathroom stall in my drenched silk blouse and designer suit, tears streaming down my face and milk streaming from my body. My vision of a future in which I gracefully managed both career and home had been obliterated. The helplessness and confusion I felt that night after my first day back at work is not uncommon. Many women have home lives that become more demanding and time-consuming at the very point when their careers need the most attention, energy, and creativity. Between all of our meetings, carpools, texts, emails, phone calls, laundry loads, play dates, working out or guilt over not working out, women are doing enough. On any given day, most of us are trying to do the impossible. This is why we are so tired and stressed. Tiffany Dufu, author of the new memoir, I think it's a manifesto, Drop the Ball, Achieving More by Doing Less. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And I was saying to you before we both came into the studio and started chatting, thank you for giving us permission to do a little bit less and to not feel lousy about it. That's right. I I was reading your going back to work story and I flashed back to going back when my son was born and it had been a really trying three months because he was born with a heart condition and had had an open heart surgery mm-hmm. and we'd been back and forth to hospitals and he was fine and he's still fine. And I was so torn and guilty about going back to work at the very same time that all I wanted to do was go back to work. And it's just, you know, to see that other people understand this and that you're saying it in a way that allows us to have all of these feelings at the very same time. It's just about time. Yeah, I I hope so. You know, I'm having such an emotional response right now, just having you read that moment in that first day, because so many of us can remember that tension and that pull. 
one of the things that I was sharing is at the beginning of this journey of releasing the book, I was speaking at a conference for women and a woman came up to me. I think there was like a healing circle that formed like in the line to get their book signed. And she came up to me with four books. So it was like clear that it wasn't just for her. She right. probably had one for her auntie, for her mom, whoever else was in, <laughs> was in her life that needed to drop the ball. And she just looks at me and she says, I need to pray on you. And I said, sure, okay. And the poor conference, you know, volunteer was just freaking out a bit because the woman started putting her hands on me. Right. They always assign somebody yes. to like be your Sherpa <laughs> yes, for the day. Exactly, exactly. She's like, uh, what do you do when someone touches the person who you're responsible for? And I said, it's okay. And she puts one hand eventually on my head and one hand on my shoulder. And she just looks up at the heavens and she says, thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for sending us permission. Thank you for sending us permission. And if that's all that this book is, is permission for women to let go of some of the unrealistic expectations that we have that, by the way, are not our fault, um, that were pretty much drilled into us, then I feel like I've done something good in the world. Yeah, I think there's very little doubt of that. <laughs> so your definition of dropping the ball is different than Webster's definition and is different than many other people's definition. Define it. Well, it's different from my own definition, right? I grew up feeling like it was very important to be flawless in so many different areas and aspects of my life, pretty much in all of them. And so I was always the person who was terrified of dropping the ball. I was terrified of making a mistake, of failing to take action, of disappointing myself, of disappointing other people, more importantly, because I was very preoccupied with what other people thought. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until my worlds collided, this world of being an ambitious professional that thought that she was going to have it all and do it all, and the reality of being a new mother kind of collided together that I started doing the one thing that I was always terrified of doing, which was dropping balls. And it wasn't as if I intentionally did it. I just became very overwhelmed <laughs> and balls started dropping. And I realized that the world didn't fall apart. And so I reappropriated, you know, the term and basically have decided that for me, dropping the ball is about releasing unrealistic expectations of doing it all. It's about getting clear about what matters most to you and what your highest and best use is in achieving that and meaningfully engaging others to help make it happen. Before we get into the steps that we can take to release ourselves in that way, I want to talk about the pressure to be spot on in all of those different disciplines that you mentioned. Do you think it's internal? I mean, I'm listening to you describe yourself and thinking, check, check, <laughs> check, yes. you know, because I've always felt all of those things. But I wonder if it's me. I wonder if it's the way I was raised. I wonder if it was a combination of both. I wonder if it's all female because I don't know that my brothers feel that way. I think one does and one doesn't. I think it's a combination of all of those things. I mean, there's no doubt that each one of us comes into the world fulfilling certain roles or carrying out those roles. If we're a woman, our first role is probably daughter. Maybe we become a sister, certainly a friend, a student. At some point, most of us become workers and citizens. Some of us become wives and mothers. And if we are ambitious women, meaning that we want to achieve mastery of some kind of craft, we want to be good at something, mm -hmm. and we want to receive public recognition for it, we want our gold star, then we by default put the word good in front of all of our roles. 
So it's not sufficient to be a daughter. We strive to be a good daughter. Right. We can't just be a student. We want to be a good student. Of course, we want to be a good worker and a good wife and a good mother and a good citizen. And all of those good roles have job descriptions that are invisible, but that we're all familiar with. And I speak to so many women and listen to so many women's stories that I'm always blown away by how we could grow up in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, even with different values, different families. And yet all of us know that to be a good big sister and I'm the oldest of four girls. I was going to ask. So so that was my next question. Are you the oldest daughter or are you the, the oldest, only daughter? I'm the oldest daughter. And I've known that, especially, you know, later with technology, that a good sister responds to her little sister's text messages within two minutes. Like mm-hmm. every big sister knows this, right? Well, and a good daughter is the one who is going to be there to take care of her parents. And the physical presence is important. In order to be a good mother, all of us know that you need to physically be present when your child takes their first steps, right? Mm -hmm. Even though if you ask most people, I would say 99% of people, who was there when you took your first steps? You probably can't even remember. I don't remember. And yet that's in the good mom job description. So it's it's in part that socialization that comes with, I mean, if all of us have these expectations, it couldn't possibly just come from inside of us. We're all unique individuals. But it also comes from, you know, for me, what I saw my mother doing when I was growing up, what I saw my aunties doing, the women in the church. Mm-hmm. It comes from popular culture. I personally used to watch The Cosby Show. It was a, a show that my family we watched religiously, and I was going to be Claire Huxtable. Well, we were all going to be Claire I Huxtable. I mean, she hair, flawless makeup, and be able to dress down her husband. Are you kidding me? I mean, she was a master. Her house was always clean. She had mm-hmm. five perfectly well-behaved children. Well, not always. Right? They were all Denise- college-bound. Wasn't Denise a bit of a problem? They were all college. They she were. still went to they she were. still went to Hillman College and was a part of the spinoff. Come on, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she made part and and Claire made partner at a law firm. Right. How many women do you know who have five college bound children who make partner at a law firm? Like none. Like not. But it's a very difficult task. So that's that's where it comes from, and and men have their own balls to drop too. But that's where that pressure comes from and those unrealistic expectations. And you combine that with the fact that very few of us are vulnerable enough to share the challenges that we're going through. I mean, later on in my journey, I did find women who were like, oh yeah, I stopped cleaning the top of my refrigerator 15 years ago. Or women who said people do that. But I never knew those women existed. you know. And so one of the things that I love to encourage all of us to do is just tell your story. When you think about the pressure to be good, is there a relationship with the pressure to be nice? I've always felt that nice was a burden. Oh, it's quite a burden. It's, you know, especially because as women, being nice always comes at our detriment, right? At, at, at the risk of us. And we sometimes abuse virtues. So we have these virtues around humility, for example, or around sacrifice um, that really do mean that we're depriving the world ultimately of our talent and our voice and our ingenuity because we're trying to accommodate others when actually what the world needs now is us you know, to be whole and to be healthy. And that's a very hard thing to come to terms with. It's a very hard thing to come to terms with. It's so much of your behavior and your actions are driven by other people's expectations of you when you're an empowered, ambitious woman who feels like she's in the driver's seat of her own life. I mean, that that was the most difficult part for me. So that picture looks different 
depending on who you are, depending on where you are in your journey. For sure. So as we go down this road of self-discovery, what steps do you want people to take to figure out what is droppable for them and what is not? Right. Well, there's a couple of steps that are really important for you to figure out, like, what balls can you drop? Which, by the way, is the most popular question I get. Okay, what balls can I drop? (laughs) Well, first you have to determine what are the balls that you can't drop because you don't know what you can either delegate with joy or just leave on the floor altogether until you're very clear about what you've got to hold on to or what you've got to take on that you haven't taken on before. The first question I always ask women is, well, what matters most to you? And I ask it because it's a very daunting, overwhelming question that most of us have not spent a great deal of time really internalizing. But we start with that question, and I send them off to do exercises. Stephen Covey has a great exercise. It's this funeral visualization exercise where you imagine your funeral Mm -hmm. and people in your life eulogizing you and what they would say about you, which is really important to get beyond the swirl of to-dos. You know, what we do is far less important than the difference we make, but it's hard to focus on the difference when we're mired in the to-dos. I do another exercise with folks where I ask them, just go to a number of people in your life and ask them one question, which is to just tell me about a time in my life when you've experienced me at my best. And just record all of the responses. Don't say anything else after that. It's great to get people who have known you in different contexts, Mm -hmm. a different time in your life, and look for the patterns and the synergy. But that's how you can begin to distill and arrive at what matters most to you. For me, it's advancing women and girls. It's nurturing a healthy partnership with my husband. It's raising conscious global citizens. A lot of times people will put those in categories. Oh, my career is important. My marriage is important. My kids are important. But what's really important is to hone in on what do you hope to achieve in relationship to those things? That's step number one. Okay. I want to come to step number two in a second, but I want to just take a quick breather and remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. And I think it's important in this kind of a conversation because one of the things that having money does is give you the opportunity to delegate those things that A, you don't particularly want to do, and B, you would be better off paying somebody else to do for you. And we all have them. I mean, for me, I am never going to weed a garden. I'm just not going to do it. I don't like to do it. I'm not particularly good at it. And I would rather spend the time doing something else, either with my work or with my kids or in some other way. So I want everybody to visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll, you'll find more conversations like this one with Tiffany Dufu. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. So the new book is called Drop the Ball. Before we proceed to step two, Tiffany, tell us about your organization. Tell us about what you do day to day. Oh, well, I have what I would call a portfolio career. Um, I spend. Oh, me too. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, and I, I love it. I spend part of my time as chief leadership officer at Levo, L-E-V-O dot com. It's a platform for millennial women to help them elevate their careers. And I love, love Levo. I spend time with Fortune 500 companies, helping them to figure out how to retain and advance their women, which is what led to drop the ball, because quite frankly, many of them are losing them in droves. And I really wanted to get at the heart 
at why, especially right at the time in our careers where they could really take off, Mm -hmm. we're saying, uh, no, (laughs) I don't think so. And, you know, I spend time volunteering on nonprofit boards. I volunteer for Girl Scouts USA, for Girls Who Code. So on any given day, I'm advancing women and girls, which is why I'm on the planet in one of those four ways. It's a fascinating portfolio that you've actually put together. And I love that you know so clearly what your mission is because yes. you've done the exercises yes. to figure it out. So what is what what is the second step? What do we do next? Yes. Well, after you're clear about what matters most to you, your next step is figuring out what is your highest and best use in achieving what matters most. And this is important because If you're not clear about this, you'll just default back to those old job descriptions that say, you know, if this is important to me, then I must make sure that, you know, I bake the apple pie for the bake sale. (laughs) Your highest and best use is a combination of what you do extraordinarily well with very little effort. It doesn't have to mean because you were a prodigy. It could be that you've just done it a lot, combined with the things that only you can do. So if, for example, one of the things that matters most to me is raising conscious global citizens, one of the things that I do really well with very little effort is helping other people to achieve clarity through guidance and encouragement. Some people would call that coaching. One of the things that only I can do is instill values in my kids. It's very hard to hire someone to instill values in human beings. (laughs) So my highest and best use in raising conscious global citizens is engaging my kids in meaningful conversations each and every day. Right. What kind of day did you create for yourself today? What did you laugh about today? Who did you laugh with? If an alien spaceship came to your school today and abducted one person, who would they have abducted? Why would they have abducted that person? And in that way, I can help curate how my kids feel about who they are in the world, their relationships with people, what their responsibility is to it. Does it mean that a doctor's appointment doesn't need to get made? No. Does it mean that a lunch doesn't need to get made? No. But it means that I am a really, really good mother if I engage them in that meaningful conversation. So once you're clear about your highest and best use, then you could look at all the things on your list and say, oh, well, that I don't have to do. I was just doing that somehow by default, but I think somebody else could do that. Or it's not so important that the chicken is marinated, actually. We'll just have to, like, fry it up or something when I get home. And when you look at the list and you figure out what to delegate, you're describing a process in which, A, you actually have a list, which mm-hmm. I don't think everybody does. But well, sometimes also, it's just in your head. You know, the thing when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, that's your list haunting you. Right. And you should write it down, by <laughs> yes. the way, when you wake up in the middle of the night, because if you don't, there will be things that you forget and don't ever make it on your list. But those things that you delegate, that you let go of, you talk about delegating with joy. Yes. I talk about delegating with joy because it was a really difficult thing for me to do. In fact, even asking for help was ironically one of the most difficult parts of my drop the ball journey. I say irony, you know, it's ironic because I'm so obsessed with helping other people. And yet I couldn't, I had a very difficult time asking for help. And I used to do something even worse than not asking for help. I used to engage in this practice called imaginary delegation, where basically you assign someone a task and you expect them to complete it. And when they don't, you get really annoyed or frustrated, but you never actually tell them that, that they're you, supposed that to that they're do supposed this? to do this. And then when common sense prevails and you think to yourself, well, Tiffany, you didn't actually tell him to take out the recycling. You snap back at common sense. Well, no one has to tell me to do anything around here. Why should, can't he see that the recycling needs to be taken out? 
And so you kind of engage in this process. So delegating with joy is just putting something into a higher context than the task itself so that whoever you're communicating with understands what the point is, what the higher purpose is. And if people in your life do care about you and want you to be your best self, then doing something like taking out the recycling seems like a very low bar and low price to pay for you creating change in the world. My husband and I, and I want to talk about your husband too, but my husband and I have an ongoing back and forth about delegating. He's a wonderful guy and is willing to take on many, many things. But what he doesn't want is for him to take on folding the towels and then me to refold the towels because I don't like the way he did it. Do you have a case of what I call in the book HCD? This is this is home control disease. This is basically <laughs> when you feel that everything under your roof should be done a particular way, which is kind of your way. I have it in I definitely have it in the kitchen. I okay. just had a Passover Seder and although I did outsource dessert. Okay. I didn't outsource the high labor things like a kugel and other things because I do it really well. And yes. and be, and I like to do it. Yes. I mean, I, I don't have a problem outsourcing things that I don't particularly like to do. But, right. you know, with the towels, sometimes I just have to step away because yes. I know it pisses him off and it should piss him off because he did it. You know, he did the laundry. He folded the towels. He went to the grocery store. And right. if he didn't get the brand of Raisin Bran that I happen to like, I just have to let it go. Yeah. And sometimes you do. You know, if it's not interfering with your ability to create change in the world, there really is no issue with it. And to be honest, for a long time in my life, there wasn't. It's just that I speak to so many women who have this, there's this correlation between their ambition and the amount of success they can feel in their professional lives because they already have so much responsibility at home. And so I like to just ask them, are all of the things that you're doing at home, are is the quality of the work that's being done at home, is it absolutely necessary? Because if it's standing in the way, if it's a barrier to your success, that's what I am encouraging you to let go of. So how have you and your husband forged a successful partnership? <laughs> Through a lot of drama, <laughs> which is very much outlined in the book. You know, I used to be the other irony of my life was that publicly I was a staunch advocate for women's leadership and disrupting gender stereotypes in the workplace and in the public sphere. But the truth was that at home I was on step for wife autopilot. And in the beginning of my relationship and my marriage, I pretty much did everything because I could do everything better than he could anyway. So why not just do it myself, which is how everything ended up on my plate. And so it took a long time to figure out how do I meaningfully engage this person Person, when really what we're talking about here is renegotiating the terms of our relationship and our marriage. Now, fortunately, he loves me dearly <laughs> and he does see my potential and wants me to be my best self. So, you know, for me, it was really at, at the core about intentional communication. So, so much of our lives are based on assumptions about what other people are expecting of us. But what I found, not just with him, but with other people in my life, including my sisters, my friends, even the people that I work for, that work for me, that beginning with setting the norms and the expectations or revisiting those expectations can be incredibly empowering mm -hmm. and also enlightening because you'd be surprised when you take a step back and say, you know what? I want to recurate this job description. I wonder what my kids think it means to be a good mom. 
I wonder what my sister thinks it means to be a good sister. What does she need from me? You'd be surprised what's on their list that isn't on yours and vice versa. It reminds me a little bit your evolution of the one that we're reading about Sheryl Sandberg having gone through after losing her husband. And she's on the cover of Time magazine talking about grief, but also talking about how she changed her perspective on lean in and partnerships and feels like, and this is my word, not hers, but feels like she was a little unfair to single parents, single people who don't have partners and are expected to do as much leaning in as everybody else. That's right. That's right. I mean, I'll I'll be honest. I did a lot of work with single moms, with women who did not have partners, who did not have children. And I came away each time with this feeling that actually the least evolved group of women were the straight women who were married and had children. And part of the reason was that all the other groups of women, in order for them to flourish, had already figured out that society sold them a bad bill of goods when it came to these expectations, right? I would talk to single moms who would say, well, in order for me to be a breadwinner and put food on the table and raise these kids, I kind of need help. So I've kind of gotten over not asking for help, (laughs) right? And so, but I think you're absolutely true. And it's a beautiful book. I've, I've read Option B, and I interviewed her recently for it. And it's a really great book for all of us, particularly about how to have these kinds of conversations with people, in her case, when they're going through trauma or grief or loss, because I'm definitely one of those people who opts to give people their space, um, when actually in kind of embracing the conflict and asking people for what they need or just showing up for them is at the end of the day, what all of us want and what all of us need. And that's what you're asking people to do, to just to show up for you. And just to bring this full circle, when we were going through when my son was born and and it was just, you know, you're pumped full of hormones and you're making big life-changing medical decisions and you, you know, you don't know what you're doing and you know that you don't know what you're doing. So it's even worse. People had no idea what to say, you know, and I got so mad at the people who would tell me that God would only give us what we could handle. Mm -hmm. And the I just remember this 26-year-old in my office saying to me, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Because that was it. That was the perfect thing. There was nothing else to say. There was nothing that anybody could do. Just anything you need, I'm really sorry that this is going on. Yeah. And, And, you know, for a 20, I was just astonished at the time that that this 26-year-old kid was so smart. That's it. That's it. Well, very, very much in tune, you know. Yeah. Which most younger younger people are. Certainly children are the best at it. No, no question. <laughs> the book is Drop the Ball. Tiffany Dufu, you're wonderful. I hope that you will come back. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Kelly and Questions. Well, I think Tiffany Dufu may be my new favorite guest. No offense to any of our other guests. I love them all. But I'm just, I feel really inspired having talked to her. Took the word right out of my mouth. Inspiring. Inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you, Kelly. Kelly is with me, by the way. You probably guessed that by now. But Kelly, Kelly is with me in the studio. And Kelly found Tiffany. I did. Her book was getting so much hype. Yeah. And I read an excerpt and I was hooked. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. All right. So we talked to her a long time. Let's get to our questions. questions. But before we do that, it seems appropriate to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day. 
and you too. Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, and to my mom. Yes. Happy Mother's Day, Elaine. And my mom. There you, Happy Mother's Day, Dottie. There you go. All right. Little shout outs. Yes. Here we go. Our first question is an email from Melissa saying that she just paid off her home, which was a dream of hers to accomplish by 50. She pays off her credit card monthly and she doesn't have any car payments. So she's wondering why her credit score went from 870 to 821 in the last month. Will her score continue to go down? My guess, Melissa, and it is just a guess, is that your credit score went down because you lost a big line item on your report. But let me just say, A21 is fine. A21 is not just fine. A21 is great. (laughs) And you don't have to worry about that. That said, there are changes coming to the world of credit scoring um, that will uh not make it so bad to close accounts anymore. These are changes happening to Vantage score, not FICO score, but just stay tuned. We will bring you more information on that so you know how to sort it all out. Meanwhile, Melissa, do not worry. Go about your day. Go about your life. You're doing just fine. 821 is really good. Really good. Better than mine, by the way. (laughs) Our next question is an email from Casey in North Carolina. She writes, in a recent episode, you touched on some of the issues surrounding professional school debt. My husband and I are both currently pursuing master's degrees. I will graduate this December with a master's in public health and will hopefully be gainfully employed shortly thereafter. My husband is applying to dental schools this summer. With both of our graduate degrees and the potential of dental school, we will be looking at roughly $300,000, not including interest in student loan debt in about six years. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for us to keep in mind or things I should be doing while I'm employed and my husband is in dental school. For example, should we see a financial advisor when I get a job to start preparing for our financial future? So I think seeing a financial advisor at any point in life where you feel some sort of inflection, some sort of change is a really good idea. Don't have to put one on the payroll for the long term. You can see an advisor who will just sit down with you and look at what you're doing. A couple things to keep in mind about this specifically. I'd say if there's any way that in addition to putting money into your retirement plans for the future, and you should be taking advantage of whatever you're offered at your place of employment, or if you're not offered anything, you should be putting some money into a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA for both you and your husband if you can. If there's any way to pay the interest on his loans while he's still in school, that'll just help you get a jump start on all of this. Also, I don't know if you've gone through the process of applying for financial aid. Some people don't do it for graduate school because they figure they're not going to get anything. You might get something. So, you know, you talked about student loans, but I would look for specific scholarships and grants that are out there for people who are pursuing dentistry. My guess is that there are quite a few. I haven't looked, but that's just my educated guess. And good luck with all of that, Casey, and congratulations on your degree. Sharon on Facebook says, I just listened to the episode where there was a comment made about retiring too early being as detrimental to one's health as years of smoking. Is this a predominantly male phenomenon? I feel like job stress is killing me and might lead me to an untimely death. I think women have so much more a sense of self outside of work that early retirement would not adversely affect them as much as men. That's a really, really interesting comment, Sharon. I, I think it depends on the type of woman you are. I I mean, I know for me, I worry about retiring. I worry about 
losing my sense of self because I know it is very tightly wound with what I do for a living. But I, I suspect you're right. I suspect it, it probably is a little bit more male than female. Um, the, the statistic that we were quoting actually came from the folks at AgeWave. And I'm going to reach out to them and just see if they have an answer on that. And I'll bring it back to you on a later show. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too. So keep it going. I do want to say, though, if you are feeling unmitigating job stress, you really should try to figure out a way to deal with that. Because one thing we know about stress is it is a huge ager, and it really impacts your health in a multitude of ways. And so if you feel like this particular job is killing you slowly, then maybe it's time to look for other opportunities where you could take your foot off the gas a little bit, continue to earn an income, but be kinder to yourself. I think that's a good way to go. Thanks, Sharon, and thanks, Jean. Sure. And let me just ask everybody, because I know that when I listen to podcasts, often I'm running, sometimes I'm cooking. I find them very good company when I'm cooking. What else are you doing while you're listening to Kelly and I chit-chat? Are you driving to work? Are you tackling your inbox? Are you scrolling Instagram or folding the laundry? I mean, this just occupies your ears, so you might want to employ your other senses too, right? Well... If you can stop whatever else you're doing and just listen, you're actually monotasking. That's the word for when you're just doing one thing. My earlier conversation with Tiffany reminded me of this not-so-novel yet novel in 2017 idea, which I recently came across in the New York Times. Most of us are chronic multitaskers. And research shows the more you try to do at one time, the less you actually get done. Not to mention the quality of what you think you're accomplishing is oftentimes compromised. This is the antithesis of the drop the ball movement. And again, it is science, like switching from one app to the next on your smartphone or having too many apps open at once. Uh Oh, I'm very guilty of that. When you switch from one task to the next, you deplete your battery of neural resources, not natural resources. That's neural, i.e. brain resources. If you routinely feel brain dead at the end of the day and seek out mindless activities like scrolling Facebook or binge watching a show on Netflix to recharge, that's a symptom of chronic multitasking. So for a little time each day, start practicing monotasking. See how the quality of your work and your thoughts and your relationships start to change. Manage a day of walking out of the office feeling energized because you felt engaged in the tasks you needed to get done. And best of all, you actually got them done. It is possible. And my favorite line from that New York Times article, paying attention pays dividends. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks again to Tiffany Dufu for a wonderful conversation. We will definitely be asking you back again in the near future. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity, of course. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon. <laughs>